Today on the Relationship Revival Show, I'm joined by Dr. Avram Weiss. Dr. Weiss is a psychotherapist, an award-winning author, and a speaker. His decade-long work on understanding the internal lives of men culminated with his recently published bestseller, Hidden in Plain Sight, How Men's Fears of Women Shape Their Intimate Relationships. Dr. Weiss is a regular contributor to the Psychology Today website and offers workshops nationally about psychotherapy with men and helping men and women understand each other. He practices psychotherapy online from his home on an island in Midcoast, Maine, specializing in uh, psychotherapy groups for men and psychotherapy consultation. I'm really excited to have him on the show talking about a topic that is near and dear to my heart, which is the role of men in relationships today in marriage, which is awesome often very confused and charged for a lot of my own clients. So selfishly, this is a, a session I've been looking forward to just for my own education and exploration of a topic that is very near and dear to my own heart. You're listening to the Relationship Revival Podcast with John DeBach, also known as Mr. Spirituality. That's me. I'm your host giving you insights and guidance from over 10 years in the field of this amazing journey we call romance. On this show, I go over everything you need to know about how to get into a relationship, how to get the most out of a relationship, and sometimes even how to gracefully end a relationship without pulling your hair out and going crazy. And occasionally, I'm even joined by new and old friends who are also relationship experts to bring you guidance and wisdom with new perspectives. Thanks for stopping by. Avram Weiss, Dr. Weiss, thank you so much for being on the program. I'm excited to talk to you about a topic that comes up in my own practice quite often, and that is kind of the status of men and the way men are viewed in the world today. I mean, would you say that's a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah, your specialty? absolutely. One of the quotes in my book, which I really was sort of stunned to come across is um, the quote, a man I can't exactly, but we have to talk about men. We have to talk about why they're so afraid of women. And it's by Meryl Streep, which I just thought was fascinating. You know, I mean, like- Do you remember the quote offhand? That was it. We have to talk about men we have to talk about why they're so afraid of women. And I thought, if Meryl oh, wow. Streep understands that, why don't my colleagues understand it? Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. That's so interesting. And I I, I hold the view, and I tell this to all of my kind of heteronormative couples that come to the door, which is the vast, vast majority of my practice. I'd say over 90% are just your traditional man, woman, kind of married couple with kids or you know, on their way to it, is that I think it's the hardest time that men have ever had to be a man because the expectations of what people expect from us both in and out of a relationship are confusing at this point. And men are kind of, I, I never used the word afraid or have a fear of, of women. Um, but I'm curious to see how you use it, but I, I, it's like, well, what do you really want? And, and then the answer is never so clear. Um, so, but you took it a step further and it's like men's fears of women. So how do, how do you define it? And what have you found in, in writing this book and doing this work for so many years? So let me, let me start by addressing the word. Um, I have, I've been told dozens of times by people that I shouldn't use the word scared or afraid, that it'll put men off and I should uh -huh. use more sensitive words like men are intimidated by women or men are anxious around women. But in my experience, afraid and fear and scared are the right words. And the fact that they make so many people uncomfortable 
is why I wrote the book. It's sort of like they're proving my right. point by their reaction. So when you say to a man, you know, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking that you're kind of afraid of your wife, you get a defensive reaction that lasts never more than 60 seconds. And within mm -hmm. 60 seconds, every man I've ever talked to looks at me and says, that makes a lot of sense. So men get it. <laughs> it's not far below the surface. So if you say things like, you know, you're, you, you're, he's telling me a story about his friends ask him to go out to work for a drink after work. And the first thing is he gets anxious about asking his partner for permission. That's if he were a child. Now realize his partner has never asked him to do that. That's not, you can't put that on her. That's his stuff about pleasing her and conflict and all those other things. And most men in that situation, their first thought is not whether or not they would enjoy themselves with their friends, but is this going to be a problem with my wife? Right. Jackie Mason's kind of old joke is, you know, if you're at a comedy concert, the man says, he's funny, he's funny. And the wife says, he's not funny. And the man says, oh, yeah, he's right. He's not funny. He's not funny. Yeah, it's, right. like the, it's like this approval seeking. But you're right. At the end of the day, that's a, that's a version of fear. And right. it's like, who, do you, who do you seek approval from? Right. You know, people you're worried about disapproving of you. People you're scared uh, that you feel at risk and vulnerable that if they didn't approve of you. So what is the core fear? Is it that the wife will leave? Is it abandonment? Is it disapproval? What's the, what's the root of it? Um, I think abandonment. So in the book, I suggest there are seven fears that men have of women and they're hierarchical. And I move from the most surface, easily recognizable, like men are afraid of being controlled by women. Most people uh -huh. will acknowledge that's true. Down to you're exactly right. I think abandonment is one of the core fears. And one of the interesting pieces of evidence for that is that um, there's an old social psych experiment called the still face experiment. Are you familiar with it? I'm not, no. So it, it's split screen research with a mother and infant. So you're watching. Oh, the yeah, yeah, sir. yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes. It's, so the, it's interacting with each other and right. you can see the conversation, although the infant doesn't speak, you can see they're communicating and they're each trying on little things. And if the other one smiles, then okay, that worked. And they're doing their thing. The mothers are instructed to turn away and turn back with a still face, not angry, not critical, just not responsive. And within minutes, every single one of the babies loses it. Right. To the point of even losing bowel control in one of the infants. So they wow. are completely, entirely dependent on that connection with their mother. And when it is broken for even a moment. It's, so interestingly, in that study, the boy babies, for whatever reason we don't know, got more upset and stayed upset longer than the girl babies. Then we go to heterosexual adults and we study them while they're in conflict. And an interesting thing happens. Physiologically, men get more upset in conflict and it takes them longer to re-stabilize after. And for men, nothing yeah. has changed. It's just the same as when they were in the crib with their mommies, because in most families, fathers are not an active emotional part of childbearing. So all the eggs are in mommy's basket. And uh -huh. in heterosexual marriages, most men don't have friendships and relationships out there marriage. So once again, all the eggs are in wife's basket. And it's the same experience for men. That's so it's so fascinating. You know, I that comes up a lot. I use, I'm, I lean very heavily on Gottman mm -hmm. on, on the, the Gottman practice and theories and everything. And, right. and one of the things in the book that they talk about, and I don't know if it's true, cause I don't know how much of 
you know, our ancestral DNA kind of gets passed down. There's no way to really prove or disprove it, but I liked, and it does resonate with a lot of clients, like the reason men take longer to recover from when they feel flooded and overwhelmed is because they used to hunt and they used to have to like bottle in the hunting. Whether it's true or not, I know a lot of men go, oh, that sounds right. Because it, it, it plays into the masculinity. Let me that give you an alternative hunting. explanation. See which one you like better. Um, sure. It's that men don't learn as much about emotions during their lives as women do. And so they are not as comfortable with emotions. So if you and I go to Italy together and you speak Italian and I don't, you're going to be a hell of a lot more comfortable in Italy than I am. That's what it's like for heterosexual men in an argument with their spouse. She understands the language of emotions and relationships. He doesn't know what the hell she's talking about. So where he normally feels empowered and powerful in an argument with his wife, he feels disempowered and like he's playing on a home field, uh, a way field. And it's what's interesting to me is I do see a shift happening in the younger generation, though, especially if they're multi-American generational, where I call it the I love you generation, where they grew up with a very emotive father yeah. and they grew up with a very supportive mother. And yet I still find, even though they have kind of been able to connect with their emotions and they are articulate of what's going on, they still have the fear of women. It's not like that goes away. It's you not know? going away anytime soon. Um, it, I think things are changing but not as much as we think they are. So one of the interesting pieces of data is that, you know, everybody now, a lot, most couples want to have an egalitarian relationship, not a hierarchical. They want to do the housework together, do the childcare together, take turns staying home when the kid's sick. Couples in their 60s do a better job of that than couple in their 30s, 20s and 30s. They do a better job of becoming an egalitarian couple? Yes better than so i'm sure that young well, there's people, also less responsibility there's no job absolutely the kids no, are yeah. out of the house yeah. you know <laughs> yeah but just also in terms of things like how decisions are made whether both people have an equal voice so i think that young people are well-intentioned and really want to make it different just like we wanted to make it different when we were their age and my parents probably wanted to make it different. it's harder to do than you think it is because the whole tide's going the other way you know, we all live yeah. in the culture and chances are just by uh, the data that the man in the relationship is going to earn more than the woman. And so when your kid yeah. gets sick and has to stay home, do you send who stays home? Which income hit do you take? You right. Know, if you don't have sick leave. Right. Right. The one that earns less stays home generally. It's, it's hard not to. The hill slopes that way. Right. And a lot right. of people find themselves, even though they didn't want to go that way, they end up there. Yeah. To me the biggest uh, drawback of this uh, that's that's so palpable is that in the fear and in the kind of modified behavior, men are becoming much less desirable yes. to the woman. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's, it's this downward, downward spiral of she's withdrawing because she's not attracted to me. And now I have even more fear. And that's usually when they end up on my couch. It's like, I don't know how they can connect. Do you find that that's a big drawback? Is there another one that I'm not seeing? Well, I think there are, yes, there are many other, but absolutely what you're talking about is an issue. And it, and it has to do with um, the relationship becoming essentially more like a parent-child relationship mm -hmm. than like a husband-wife relationship. And that's even talked about in the literature, it's so common. And so you have 
often a woman who is more in tune with the relationship, at least with the emotional parts of it. And so she's the one who's going to bring up things first. So she begins to sound like the dissatisfied one, like the complainer. Mm -hmm. But it's not because she's harder to please. It's because she's paying more attention. So she's more likely to say, you know, we haven't uh, had any spending intimate time together recently, or we never talked about that disagreement. She's more likely to bring that up. Unfortunately for men who are trained to believe that they are responsible for everything, anytime their partner is unhappy, they don't hear it as a request for connection. They hear it as criticism and inadequacy. You're telling yeah. me I'm not doing it right. I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm not a man enough. And so, of course, they react the way anyone does when they think that's what's happening. They withdraw. Yeah. So then the woman who's been pursuing contact instead gets a response of withdrawal. And what do most people do when they feel like they're not being listened to? They get louder. Yep. And off you go. Yeah. Or they withdraw too. It depends on the personality yeah. type. But either one is completely destructive. I totally see that. Yeah. And it, so it's what a profound misunderstanding. So is your book designed for men or is it designed for both men and women to read to understand what's going on in, in a relationship? It's and is it, is it exclusive to marriage? I think it's a book that men should read before they're married. You know? Well, that would be great. Actually, what would be great is if they would read it with the woman they're dating would be even better. Okay. Um, it's a book for men and women. It is, it is more of the book is addressed to men than women because the topic is men. But sure. women obviously have a big interest in what goes on with men if they're heterosexual. And so um, the last section of the book is sort of how to, and there are three chapters, one for men, one for women, one for couples. Great. What do you feel like is the biggest... Uh, impetus for change is it or, or or the driver is it really about men kind of coming into and owning their position and understanding it or are there things that kind of that, that we're fighting against society or is it a mixture of both it's all the above um i wrote an art i write for um psychology today and i wrote one article on um men in psychotherapy what's in it for you because I think part of the problem is we, we suggest to men that they go get help, but we, we do it in a shaming, horrible way. You know, we basically say, you're deficient. You need to go over there and work on that. It's not, it's, mm -hmm. and then we pathologize men for not taking them up on it. You know, like it's not, a, it's not an alluring invitation. But if we would say to men, listen, if you give me a list of the top five things that annoy you about your wife that you have never been able to move the needle on, get into therapy for yourself and three of the five will change. Then I think you'd have men lining up for psychotherapy if you actually told them what was in it for them. So for example, I was taught, and it's always been true for me, that 90 something percent of people who have a good therapy experience make more money. Why don't we tell people that? Why don't we say, hey, you could double your business if you get yourself into therapy because it's you that's standing in the way of growing it. So there are a lot of benefits. There are a lot of reasons that I think we could make it more attractive to men. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, does, it also doesn't help that most 
therapists are female. <laughs> they they a, are female. There. Yeah. And um, there's an old saying, um, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. So we, we, <laughs> we act as if men are paranoid and defensive about going to therapy. But the fact of the matter is, in the teaching I've been doing with therapists, I'm using the phrase gender sensitive therapy. Okay. So most therapists will adopt a, sense, a series of values that include and emphasize things like emotional vulnerability and emotional openness. Well, the average man walking into a therapy office may not endorse those values. That may not be what he wants out of therapy. And so if the therapist unthinkingly and insensitively sort of assumes that that's what the client's interested in, that's whether it's a male or female therapist. Yeah. That's a yeah. problem. That's bad therapy. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, I was, my wife's a therapist and when she, she kind of trained me. She's like, the first thing you should ask is what are they looking to get out of the session? You know? <laughs> it's just sort of basic respect. Carl Jung said right. that you should approach every patient as if you had never seen a patient before in your life and didn't know anything, which is brilliant. Imagine yeah. if every person you met, you could do that, like block all of your assumptions and just take the person on with no judgment. Yeah, that's my approach to interviewing. I try to come in with a blank slate. Yeah. And it's, it, you know what? When you have that kind of openness, you learn a lot more. You grow a lot more. And that's, it's, it's been an amazing, and it's so easy. It's just let go of everything. Come in fresh. Well, I don't, I don't agree with everything you said, except it's easy. I don't think it is easy. I think it may be easy for you, but lucky you. Most people struggle with that quite a bit. And because they're, the judgments about yourself and other people are so insidious. They're so, you don't even notice that you're doing it. And which right. is the whole movement now, the whole woke movement, whatever your politics are, is basically saying to people, there are ways in which you are making judgments you don't even know you're making. Yeah, for sure. At, at, at bottom line, that's what that's about. And we talked before the interview a little bit, since you brought up the woke movement, there's this, you know, this phrase that's kind of permeated the, the, the social culture, toxic max masculinity. Right. And, and listen, we're two white guys talking about masculinity, just the fact that we're having a conversation. Some people might be upset about it. Absolutely. I don't take that stance. I'm like, look, I'm going to talk about it. I, I never shy away from difficult subjects, but what, what do you feel about this kind of, you know, thing that's going on where it feels to a lot of men like an attack on men? Well, um, they're not wrong. Um, I think there is a lot of that woven into what's going on. And so, as I mentioned to you, um, researchers, people who are studying men's dynamics and therapy with men, are moving away from the term toxic masculinity because it is taken in a pejorative way. Whether or not it was meant that way, which it wasn't, that's what mm -hmm. it's come to mean to people. And again, if you were selling soap, would you call it toxic soap? I mean, it's not its not a great pitch. If you're reaching out to men and wanting to engage them, call it toxic, doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I find that a lot of things get appropriated like that. I mean, I remember being a kid, people used to use the word schizophrenic to just mean wacky, oh, yeah. sure. you know, and, and sure. it's like people didn't really understand what schizophrenia was. And now a lot of my clients casually throw out words 
like emotional abuse or financial abuse when it's really not appropriate. And I have to kind of say like, look, let's examine that because there are some legal implications, you know, if you're going to start throwing those words around and it doesn't work out between the two of you. Well, there, there are legal implications and there are clinical implications because once, so the decision about whether or not to use those words to describe what you've been through, it's not one to take lightly. Yeah. And, and, you really want to think about if I'm calling that abuse, then what is, where am I? What is, what, what will I be saying about myself in that? And like, I'm not saying don't use the word. I hope I wouldn't be hurt. No, that no, that's thing. clear. You want it's to use it appropriately. Word. It's a powerful word that should be used with a great deal of care and thought, not tossed yeah. around lightly. Yeah. That's what upsets me is when it gets tossed around flippantly, but I'm like, right. That, I don't think that's what you really mean because you're not, you know, that's not, and, and they, and then when we examine it, they go, yeah, maybe not, you know? So. Well, I'll tell you a marvelous book on the subject by a woman by the name of Sarah Schulman from, I think, Harvard, wrote a book called Conflict is Not Abuse. And it's a, she's an academician and it's a brilliant series of experiences of hers where she gets into a conflict with someone, usually a younger person, who then immediately screams some version of this is abuse. And yeah. what she points out is that when that word is used, the conversation is now over. Whereas if you say, hey, that really offended me what you just said, then perhaps I would respond, really? I had no idea. Tell me what, a now we're having an exchange. Whereas yeah. when we quickly just call it abuse, that's like you leave and I leave and I don't know what the hell happened. Yeah, that's curtains right there, right? Yeah. You, you say that you said the magic word that basically forces me to detach because I don't want, I don't want to be accused of more harm. Yeah, and it, um, it's interesting if someone says, you know, that was abusive, and you say, well, I, I don't understand. Can you help me see that? And they don't want to talk to you. You have to wonder where they're coming from. Right, right. I'm going to check out that book. I think I have, I have a couple clients that might it's be able good. to to use it. Very good. Um, what is a first step? So in addition to reading this book, or maybe it's talked about in the book, but for people listening, so they can kind of get a taste of your, or of your style of approaching this, if you find that, you know what, I do have some fears and they're manifesting in my relationship in ways that I don't like, and I want to change things, what's one small step they could take to start changing or seeing change? Counterintuitively, what I've learned is that the first step that's most helpful is finding a way to find other men to talk to about this. Um, I run online therapy groups for men. And when I first started, I thought this is going to be awful. They're not going to talk. They're going to uh, talk about work or they're going to talk about politics, but they're not going to really dig 180 degrees wrong. Now, wow. what I've learned over the last decade is that when you put men in a room together and give them permission to talk and there are no women in the room, they're dying to talk to each other and they talk yeah. in great depth and intimacy with each other in ways I often in those groups feel like almost like a privileged observer. Like I can't believe I got to watch this happen between these men. Wow. So I think that's the easiest place to start. And the book has suggestions for how to find other guys, like basically started as a book group. Let's read the book together and come together and talk about it. And then hopefully that would then, be easily slide over into, well, let's just keep getting together once a month and hanging out. Yeah. And wow. I'd love to observe one of those if that's possible. Gosh, yeah. 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 Amazing. 
Well, I, I mean, I commend you on the great work you're doing. It's, a, it's you. definitely something that's very close to me and I see it. I mean, it's, it's interesting to watch it over time. Uh, you've, you've been at this longer than me, but mm -hmm. I mean, even within the 10 years, I've seen just a frustration. It's almost like a knee jerk reaction to some things that are going on in the world where men are getting even more aggressive and then some of them just fall apart. But it's hard to deny that something's going on. And you need to you need to wrestle with it as a reality. A colleague of mine, uh, Jed Diamond, is working on, on a project to try to address men's health, physical health. There are a lot of reasons that men don't live as long as women, um, largely because men don't get health care as frequently as women do. So he told me that the single largest factor, if you if you made a pie and which slice the, is the biggest slice of early mortality in human beings, being masculine is the biggest slice in the pie. It's the biggest wow. risk factor for early death. And if you took the number of years gained, if men lived as long as women, and you multiply the number of years by the men and came up with a total number of years lived, it would save more lives than curing cancer. So this That's is amazing. not some dilettantish subject that, you know, to sit around the, this is life and death that we're talking about. And men are doing worse and worse. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, there's some urgency about it, about finding effective ways to reach out to men. There's, there's a joke a friend of mine says, probably every time we hang out, <laughs> where he says, why do, why do men die before their wives? Have you heard this? I think so, but I don't remember the punchline. The punchline is because they want to. <laughs> right. Right. And it shows like there's some pain. I mean, it's, it's so Absolutely. interesting. A friend who tells right. me that joke has some struggles in his relationship. So that's his way of, of bringing up the fact that I don't know how to deal with this pain. Well, that's exactly how I started on this book is that um, I, men would come to my office and tell me all the things they were happy about in their marriage. And I would say, well, have you talked to your wife about any of these? And they would look at me like, are you nuts? Like, <laughs> no, like it was clearly, they were terrified to tell her what they were unhappy about. And that's when, so what's your process when you realize that they're terrified? Do you go, do you try and figure out which one of the seven fears they have? No, or my what's process, your, what's your, yeah, go my ahead, sorry. process is because I'm pretty direct. I use the word scared or afraid. And, and, uh -huh. and like I say, they get a little put back, but then now we're in it because once, once a man has admitted out loud that he's afraid, we're, we're through the preliminaries. Now we're really talking about what's going on and it, so it's it's a little risky to use that word because you could push him away, but it hadn't happened yet. Mostly, it's so helpful to men to realize that that's it's like the you know the key in the lock. It's like I've been running around, running around, running around, running. I don't understand what the hell I'm doing. Oh, wait a minute! Now I now I'm starting to get it. It yeah. can be that experience. Yeah, I the first therapist I ever had kind of pointed it out even into my own life because I was hesitant to bring up certain things in my own yeah. marriage very, very early on. And one of the things he taught me that was so helpful, and I still pass it on to, to my, my clients today is there's, there's going to be discomfort when you, when you bring Absolutely. up things you're scared of. Yeah. Can you sit with the discomfort? Right. You have to learn to sit there and not cave and actually <laughs> see where things go. The other, the other, that's absolutely spot on. And the other part of it is that when you don't say something, the other person knows something's going on, unless you yeah. just like are not connected at all. 
And usually what they fill in, because you're not saying what they imagine and fill in is 10 times worse than what worse. It is you're thinking. Yeah. So you, there's, yeah. No, there's no free pass. You're not, you're not getting off. You know? Yeah. You might as well talk about it. Yeah. It's actually. Well, thank you so much for being here. This is Very so well. great. I, I absolutely I loved this conversation we had. Um, where can people find this book? What's the best way for them to get it on your website directly? You, you can. You can get it directly from my website, which is avramweissphd.com. It's, it's on Avram Amazon. is A-V-R-U-M and Weiss is W-E-I-S-S. I'll put all the links in the show notes for everybody, but, um, but I thought I'd just spell it out on I air as well. It. Mm-hmm. I appreciate it. And, uh, and, and are you still doing groups for people who are interested? I do two uh, men's groups online a week. And the, the project I'm working on now, which I'm excited about, which if any of your listeners are interested, just email me, is I'm developing a workshop for couples to help men and women understand each other better using some yeah. of these ideas. And what I mostly end up feeling is like we're not that far from understanding each other. There's a lot of crap in the way, but once you start to peel away some of the crap, it's so, it feels so good to yeah. understand better. I agree. And you know what the funniest thing to me is, I also find that women are afraid to ask men to be the kind of man they want them to be because they've Absolutely. been taught right? and they've been taught they want confused. this. They're confused. If if you um, uh, if you go if you go to the grocery, you know, you go to the grocery store and you're getting a check online. Sometimes they have women's fiction mm -hmm. there. Pick up one of the books. The genre of those books is called bodice rippers. Bodice rippers. Women's erotica are called bodice rippers, meaning there's a large element of being taken, not quite against their will, but not quite consenting. That's right. a very erotically charged area, but right. it fuses the hell out of men and women. Yeah. And I find, you know, it's like when I, when I rephrase it, when I'm talking to a couple, as opposed to you have to be the leader, I tell the women, wouldn't it be nice if at the end of the day, when you're filled with all these choices and things that you have to yeah. do throughout the day as a woman, because you're emotionally sensitive to not have to think for a minute and let your husband lead, and they, and you see their heads, even if I'm on a zoom kick back, like that's exactly what I want. Exactly. But the exactly. word leader has a charge or the word control has a charge right. that they don't like. But so that's where those, it's just a reframing that needs to happen. Right. Sometimes. That's where those parent child dynamics come in place. The woman who's stuck in the role of the critical parent wants a partner. She doesn't want a child to be telling what to do and supervising. She wants a partner who says, oh, I was thinking on the way home that we don't have anything for dinner. So I stopped and picked up not the right. not the partner who says, oh, do you want me to go get something for dinner? You know, right. put a partner. Right. Absolutely. Well, thanks again. Thank you for being here. Very welcome. If you're interested in learning how to get the absolute most out of your romantic relationships, then you're in luck because I have put together a free workshop or masterclass, if you will, about three secrets that people in happy relationships have discovered. You can view the workshop at mrspirituality.com slash three secrets. Again, it's completely free. Just go there and watch it. It'll help you on your journey, give you some wisdom, some things to think about. The website again is mrspirituality.com slash three secrets. That's mrspirituality.com slash the number three, the word secrets. It's all yours. Enjoy. Enjoy.